Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. I'm joined by Matt Bosnagel, Director of Communications and Marketing here at Gray Capital. If you're a multifamily investor, you're trying to get into the multifamily investing world, maybe you're kind of already doing that, you're, you're an investor, you're in the industry, we design The Gray Report just for you to keep you up to date on everything that's going on in the multifamily industry, real estate, and the economy. Every single day, we are searching for the latest research reports, data, articles to try to give us just a better picture on where the multifamily industry is and maybe where it's going. Therefore, we can make some even better investment decisions in the future. We've got a lot of great reports today, reports from CBRE, Newmark, Apartment List, article from the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be breaking it down, trying to filter the noise. Let's get into it. All right, everybody. Thanks again, and welcome to The Gray Report. Um, but first, just a quick message from our sponsor. This episode of The Gray Report is sponsored by The Gray Fund, a stabilized multifamily investment fund sponsored by Gray Capital. It's a $100 million equity fund targeting to acquire around $300 million worth of cash-flowing multifamily assets in the Midwest. We're offering bespoke return profiles, a lot of customization, a lot of different features. But the most important thing is you're going to be partnering with a, an experienced sponsor, the experience of uh, investing over 10,000 apartment units, currently having over $500 million of assets under management. So if you are an accredited investor and the opportunity is only open to accredited investors, hop on over to graycapitalllc.com slash grayfund. That's llc.com slash grayfund. There's a quick form to fill out. Just express a certain level of interest. You're going to get sent over the full investment presentation. We're hosting a webinar next week as well, and you'll be sent the information to sign up to attend that webinar. And actually, Matt, we're going to be hosting a webinar twice a month. Twice a month? Twice a month. The second Saturday of every right. month, and then the third Tuesday. So awesome. Saturdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and then Tuesdays, I believe, at 3 p.m. Eastern. So if you miss a webinar, we're going to be hosting additional webinars. And during those webinars, we're really going to be breaking down not only just kind of the overview how the fund's structured, what we're targeting, the criteria. We're also going to be going into kind of what the pipeline is, giving a sneak peek of all the deals that we're looking at, deals that are under contract, because we've got over $600 million worth of just deals in the pipeline. We've, I think we'll have submitted three LOIs this week on about, call it $60 million worth of assets. And then we're, we've got three LOIs going out next week for um, about $150 million worth of assets. We've toured about 2,000 different apartment units over the last couple of weeks, you know, walking units, looking for deals. And the environment is still, you know, positive. You know, yeah. things are moving, but we're still be able to find some pretty compelling opportunities. And so if you'd like to kind of join us on this journey, find some great apartment assets, again, hop over to graycapitallc.com slash the gray fund. All right, Matt, beyond business, have you been how are you feeling, most importantly? I've been feeling good. I'm, I'm pretty energized this week. It's been an exciting week with the launch of the Gray Fund. Yeah. And, um, there's, and, and I continue to get some, some positive news. A, a little bit of the anxiety that was kind of lingering last week has really kind of resolved. I think that there are some really strong signs. Retail spending was up. Yeah. 
I just saw last night or maybe this morning. But yeah, there there's some unexpected growth in and it seems like a little bit of the anxiety is starting yeah. to be so. <laughs> I think part of your lower anxiety level is just the fact that you're tuned in and yeah. it's easier to kind of see past the headlines mm-hmm. um because we were just talking right before um we hit the record button about quite a few articles and some videos pointing towards an upcoming housing crash and, and yeah. you know it's good to know that i mean there's always like we've said there's always a black swan out there there are always things that we need to be aware of and as often as there can be positive signs there may be something lurking out there and when everything looks positive it's a good time to be a little bit cautious yeah but it's not a good thing to just to be concerned to make decisions just based on a feeling mm-hmm. the next step is let's actually dig into it let's look at the data yeah because the biggest reason I've seen people say that, okay, there's going to be a housing crash, are pointing at the amount of supply that's going to be coming online over the next really two to three years. But that discussion is really absent a comparison to the demand in those markets and yep. also lumping in, basically looking at it from a national perspective, which again, you can see some trends and some themes but it's as we talk about all the time it's really a hyper local yeah yeah when you whenever we talk about supply it's like what is this market doing it's not like a bunch of apartments in washington state is really going to affect rally durham you know yeah (laughs) exactly and then you know just one market then you have to look in those sub markets there's some some markets that are just lagging and different positions in the economic cycle i mean i'm just thinking about you know, Indianapolis, for example, where, you know, the downtown is in a recovery phase, whereas other markets like, you know, maybe the suburbs are really much more of an expansionary phase. Yeah. So it is it is interesting to to look at these numbers and how absorption continues to outpace the supply anyways. Yeah. So if those numbers were flip flopped, then I'd be worried. But just a big number for supply Without looking at absorption and without looking at the people that are going into these apartments, then it's not really, yeah. there's no context. And looking at how our deficiency of housing units, because yeah. I think I think last year in 2021, we had about almost double the amount of absorption that we yeah. had new supply. So we've mm-hmm. got some catching up to do. That's for sure. Let's just get into the first report. Is there a yeah. CBRE, Commercial Real Estate, Capital Markets Q4 2022. This is an important one, Matt. Just tracking capital inflows because this is, I mean, this is a little bit more macro, looking at least again national level. But what are people investing in, and mm-hmm. what's the investor appetite? Maybe a little bit of insight of you know cap rates going up, going down. Yeah. People buying deals doesn't seem like cap rates are going to be going up. But what, what what's your takeaway, Matt? I talked about context just a, just a second ago, and this one I specifically started with this one because it provides a. U.S. context and the context of how different sectors are performing. It's not just multifamily, although it's definitely the star of the show when it comes to this report. Multifamily led all sectors for investment volume in the past quarter and for the year. Total U.S. CRE investment was a record $296 billion for the fourth quarter and a record uh, $746 billion for 2020 as a whole. Wow. Those are big numbers. And when you're talking about markets... LA and NYC had the highest levels of investment, but the Sun Belt led for investment growth. Yeah. Las Vegas is up 232%. This is for all sectors. Houston up 191%. South Florida, 179% increases. Wow. Those are crazy increases. And the year over year increase for last quarter, this is for everything between Q4 2020, Q4 2021. This is for all markets. Yeah. 
was 90%. And it's not much different when you look at the full year. Was it so is that year over year? For the full year, it's 86 point it's 86%. And then just for the fourth quarter year over year, it's 90. Wow. Essentially, you know, uh, the same. But that, the, Huge. In, but in, and then it gets into the base effect because if we're comparing yeah. 2020 I know, that's, investment, yeah. you know. This is a story of so how down. little, yeah, the, how little investment there was in 2020, just as much as how much there was an increase. And, and, and again, this is coming right back to what we were talking about earlier about looking, you know, at only one part piece of the data. Exactly. And you can look at that and make a conclusion i wouldn't necessarily be wrong that like mm-hmm. wow this is so frothy because there's so much money yeah. which is 100 percent accurate mm-hmm. but looking at your year over year numbers is a little bit you're not looking at a clear picture it's yeah. better to yeah. look at you know 2019 compared to mm-hmm. you know 2020 and and that's what's kind of frustrating too at least for me now as we were looking at pre-pandemic trends and the farther we get away from the pre-pandemic the more it's going to be this kind of muddy middle where yeah. where these two years are going to it's going to be harder to make that jump and so just looking at some of these metros which metros are getting the most overall investment let's look at multifamily though yeah like you said las vegas growth Year over year, yeah, three hundred ninety four percent growth, and then you know Houston followed by South Florida, number four, three spot, four Orlando, five Baltimore, six San in San Antonio, seven San Diego, eight Seattle, nine Nashville, and ten Raleigh, Durham. Not too surprising seeing yeah. that list. I'm maybe you know Baltimore. Dallas, I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah Baltimore. I haven't Baltimore's really read that. Uh, read you know read that much. We we talked about the. Sunbelt, but yeah, Baltimore is a clear yeah, outlier. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I think. And this is for investment volume too. And this is why I kind of like this chart. It's a little bit different than previous reports we had of like rent growth and absorption of vacancy and supply, which this report does touch on. This is kind of really looking at how much investor vol- investor attention is being Good paid point. on these specific markets and on these specific sectors. And also, you know, if you if you do look at multifamily compared to these other sectors. It's a clear leader when it yep. comes to investment volume. Its market share is 45.9%, and it's almost double the second place, which is industrial, at 21.5% yep. of market share, followed by office, 183 retail at 9.9%, and hotel at 57 wow. yeah. So you can see the drop-off is really right after multifamily. Yeah, and, we, and where experienced investors are putting their chips, yeah. um, where they think it has legs. And I mean, remember, I remember us saying this early on in the pandemic when... It's probably like May or June, maybe even July, essentially saying that when we started seeing that we were still receiving rent and delinquency wasn't shooting up and occupancy was still strong Mm -hmm. and things were surprisingly going well. We looked around and we're like, if we can get out of this relatively unscathed, this is going to be one of the most popular investment asset classes because it will have proven what everyone Mm -hmm. had said about multifamily being recession resistant. Yeah, you, you you could throw that. A lot of that was due to you know government support and, and other factors, but try to strip out that well, variable out of any asset class last year. And that may imply that there is some more room for this to be skewed even further, because if you look at the numbers for 2020, which is on that chart, the number the the, the sectors don't really change that much. If you um, it's on the previous page. Um, where it measures, I'm sorry, one more, <laughs> one more before then. Um, it talks about the 2020 breakdown and multifamily in 2020 was 45.9%. 2021 is 42.3%. So it's multifamily investment has a slightly smaller share in 2021 
than other shares, it looks like things are still kind of shaking out. I still see a huge leadership role. Oh, yeah. Multifamily and industrial, for for sure. And there's one thing I just, again, because we're looking at this a lot, it's related to kind of the stuff we're targeting. I mentioned this earlier on our Monday meeting, Matt, but how I'm looking at not just for multifamily investment, Mm -hmm. I'm looking at where are other investments going in that are going to create momentum for multifamily assets. And one particular theme that we've identified, especially in the Midwest, especially in Indianapolis, being the crossroads of America, it's the second largest FedEx hub in the entire world. One of the top airports, Indianapolis International Airport is one of the top airports for cargo freight. Obviously, e-commerce yeah. is, has been growing quite a bit. Industrial. Um, yeah. It's industrial. Looking at you know where the, all these new logistics facilities are being constructed and where those investment dollars are flowing, and you see a very different This is This, is, this gave me a little goosebumps. Compared here. to multifamily investment, retail, or office. It's, it's, it's all of a sudden a bunch of Midwestern markets in yeah. logistics space. For listeners, you got to see this chart. It is the, the heavy hitters, you know, the, the Seattle's and Phoenix's and Houston's and Las Vegas's or and South other, Florida's. Yeah, those, those are, those are the classes. multifamily leaders and the other areas. But when you look at an industrial, it is incredible how different it is. Yeah. It really is. So just on the industrial development list, St. Louis is at number one. They've grown 144% year over year. And then Sacramento, which makes sense. It's near Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit cheaper. Then we've got Austin. Makes Austin just growing everywhere. Phoenix makes sense. San Diego, Las Vegas, and then Indianapolis, Columbus, Salt Lake City, and Memphis. So really, I'm looking at the St. Louis, the Indy, Columbus, yeah. and Memphis. You don't really see elsewhere on this list. And the themes themes of all of these are, are logistics and e-commerce mm-hmm. um, for, for absolutely all of this. I mean, it makes sense. San Diego with the ports and just Phoenix because they've got a lot of people. In. But yeah, we're, lo- we're well, we're looking at maybe a a growing midwestern industrial presence and those are going to bring jobs and jobs will bring people jobs uh, you know it'll raise the the economies there and decently paying jobs too because they've raised all of those wages significantly Mm -hmm. i mean we we see the signs you know looking for people work i mean 25 dollars 35 dollar and you know per hour entry level Mm -hmm. opportunities and we're driving through some markets looking at some properties on the south side of Indianapolis when we were driving by literally millions of square feet yeah. of industrial development under construction. Some just mm-hmm. completed, but most of it's still being constructed. And I'm looking around, I'm trying to find all the housing development because I'm asking myself, where are all these people going to live? Yeah. The occupancy in the submarkets like 98%. And I saw a couple single family homes being built, hmm. no multifamily being well, built. Well, this is and this is the benefit of having the kind of boots on the ground experience and knowing the story. We've lived through it. We know firsthand driving by the airport every day how much the fedex how much fedex has this presence in indianapolis specifically i'm sure that there is a similar story for places like columbus or memphis where you know this you know maybe they know the individual drivers but the net result is you know very robust industrial presence exactly and and sometimes they're in parts of the city that you wouldn't have initially identified as like okay this is where i want to be because Mm -hmm. They're often, you know, slightly more industrial. It's, you know, it's not in the most expensive dirt because, you know, industrial, you don't need necessarily, you know, main on main location. But then where are people going to work? Maybe there's not enough housing near there. And sure, people will commute. But, you know, I'm just thinking of one property in particular we're pursuing. Mm -hmm. You know, again, there is hundreds of thousands, not millions of square feet of industrial literally going up like right around the street. 
But if that wasn't there, you may not be pointing to that area mm-hmm. because there are areas that are maybe a little bit more depressed. And if you just drove by, if you just drove to the property, you might not realize what was going on. But yeah. then you look up at an aerial and you, in the new aerial photos, Google Earth, they don't even have all the development on there. So even if you're doing Google Earth, you know, you got to get on the ground, got to be on the ground. You know, it really wasn't until you kind of fly over the area, you see, yeah. wow, this is what's going on. <laughs> And just as a joke about that, about that specific area on the east side of Indianapolis, I was talking to a broker who had just sold a deal on that side of town. Mm-hmm. And deals on that side of town often go to a little bit higher cap rates, and you can get usually get a deal. He took off on a private jet from there's a small airport out on that side of town, literally right mm-hmm. next to all this logistics growth. They, they took off, and they're flying over, and they're looking down at all of this industrial development. And it, it's so, when you see yeah. it, it's, it's, so, it's so much like that it's like we could have got we could have yeah, got yeah. more money for that we, we should we we undercut that price we could have sold it for a lot yeah more and people aren't seeing it and again that's where you i think what you said the boots on the ground is, is important yeah. how else i mean how else do you know? zillow I, I keep coming back yeah, that's zillow. my straw man yeah. but they tried to you know put an algorithm to it there's just so much information and it is information that you'll get through lived experience and just yeah. knowing what's going on yeah Absolutely, Matt. Well, let's. So, this is a great report. Again, you can find those reports on the Gray Report. Sign up for the Gray Report newsletter, graycapitalllc.com slash newsletter, or just hop on over to grayreport.com to get daily updates. Let's move on to this new Mark report. It's another capital markets report. So, again, we love comparing these different reports covering the same topics to see what is the difference. I like this report. This was a good one, actually. Some bold calls in it. I'm happy. It makes me, (laughs) I like reading this kind of stuff. Slightly different numbers for multifamily investment, but still within the same ballpark as the CBRE capital markets report. CBREs had 315 billion for multifamily last year and Newmark has 335. And the quarterly numbers is, is also roughly, you know, roughly the same returns though. This one really does look at returns in a little bit more detail than the CBRE report. They increased to their highest level since 2005, which is 19.9, more than double the long-term average of 8.6. Absorption continued to outpace supply at 673,478 versus 358,734 units. We were close on that double, right? Yeah. Oh, and this is, and again, like this is the context that we're talking about. If those numbers were flip-flop, then we may be, then we may be looking at, at a problem, but all of the absorption numbers seem to be going up all the vacant or, or at least stably high and all of the vacancy numbers have been fairly stably low i don't think that there's going to be a housing crisis coming soon at least if you're looking at supply and demand well it may, again this is interesting because people point to the markets that housing experts at least are seem to say they're the best markets because yeah. they have all the demand they're looking at the demand but i would say people who are cat you know casual observers mm-hmm. only looking at the supply and saying that's a lot that's all. That's a big number, and it was more than 2008. And I'm just going. You're, we're at that peak, and so therefore yeah. things must go down, which is know, a relatively lazy yeah, like analysis. Um, not that again. You, I do think there is a concern for oversupply, mm-hmm. and I think that the chance of that happening would be in those markets that are having an incredible amount of supply. Yeah. Um, now, the demand seems to be there. Yeah. You can find markets that have a little more balance where we're just we're seeing incredible demand without the supply. That's what we've been targeting. Yeah, and but I still don't think well, and that's the thing. It's like we've crash. been very you know optimistic. I would say is optimistic about 
the growth of the of the housing market and multifamily specifically. But you know, at the same time, we are sensitive. That's the first thing we look at when we're looking at markets, or one of the first things is the supply. And yeah. so, as long as you're sensitive to that and you're aware of it, then you're it's not going to be that risky. You're you're not going to ha- have to worry about you know all of a sudden there's twice as many houses on the market yeah. than yeah. Than well, that's what these people have been talking about, which we'll yeah. do. We'll we'll bring a reaction video. So again, this is, we're looking at a graph, if you're a listener, of just looking at um, sales volumes, 2001, all the way through 2021. And yeah, there was... Yeah, there's your base effect. That's quite a bit. Exactly. So in 2020, sales volumes dropped to 146.9, um, what is billion, I assume. Yeah. Um, and then uh, back in 2019, though, um, we were at 193 billion and now it is that has been that has increased um, ever since 2009. But in 2022, we had a record at 335. Yeah, and it looks like the 2021 dollars. numbers it they more than make up. So it went from in 2019 investment numbers were 193 billion. Then it went down to one for basically 147 billion. But then in 2021, it's 335 billion, which is vastly more than the difference between 2019 and 2020. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not like we, it's we, making we, up. We made up for it. And so what yeah, are the reasons? And more. And so what, were, what were the reasons for this? Um, there's, there, there's, there's a, there's a handful. Um, one, and this is a trend that's going to be going on for the next couple of years. Is It's a generational thing. It's related to the great resignation, mm-hmm. but there are owners, a lot of apartment owners who are, they're getting older and they're wanting to retire. Yeah, that's a good point. And they're like, ah, I'm going to, I'm, trying to sell my assets, take a more passive approach, you know, just simplify things. And because now they're able to, they, they're getting called from brokers every single day. They were last year and they still are today mm-hmm. saying, you know, you know, ring, ring, uh, your, your asset that you bought for $4 million is worth $20 million. Yeah. And in their mind, they never thought that they would see those valuations. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that last year, there's all these conversations of, um, you know, increasing capital gains oh, yeah. tax, all those discussions on changing the tax code. And that created a lot of uncertainty and for a lot of investors to let's lock in the tax rate of today rather yeah. than take roll the dice on seeing what's going to happen over the next years. That pushed a lot of sales forward. Then you said, you know, in the pandemic in 2020, there weren't as much sales. Some sales were just delayed mm-hmm. and bled into 2021. And so there's this confluence of factors on then on top of multifamily is doing really well. Yeah. It's, we said back in 2020, you know, it's in a recession, it's doing really well. All these other yeah. investors in retail and office hospitality aren't exactly rushing to go buy another hotel. Yeah. Where are you going to put your money? You want to invest in real estate? Man, multifamily seems pretty attractive. Yeah. There definitely is more investment attention, I think, um, into CRE and, and multifamily for sure. Yeah, but man, just, yeah, just looking at these monthly sales volumes, just very, it, it definitely aggressive. And and that's where, you know, again, if you're like, just like looking at charts and, you know, with the idea that what goes up must go down and there's always a reversion to the mean and all of that, then you're like, yeah, this looks like a kind of a parabolic move that should have some sort of correction. And I don't think that's like a inappropriate, you know, a reaction. But I, again, I think it's or what is causing this to happen and yeah. you know a little pullback that may be okay if that was even to be the case yeah i think um i also like their information on on returns if i could kind of return to that. on page 10 it looks at the returns by market and 
it's kind of interesting because we've looked at rent growth for a lot of these, but these factor in appreciation as well as, mm -hmm. um, you know, as well as kind of the total return that they have. And, um, and we see some leaders and these are, these are clear leaders, you know, that we've, that we've covered before, but it is worth, you know, uh, worth looking at how much appreciation has really skyrocketed uh, over the past year. And Las Vegas and Phoenix up yeah. almost 90% in terms of just appreciation. Because they got the rent growth and massive cap rate compression. Yeah. So they're, they're hitting on all, all cylinders. So they're on that far, on the far, you know, upper right, which is the, where you want to be. <laughs> and um, Chicago is down there at the bottom end um, with, with less than 10%. Of total return for the past year a lot of growth wow yeah that, that, that's incredible let's look at this dry powder because again this is true in the multifamily market it's true in the single family market and and again this is theme of talking about you know comparing a crash and, and what would lead to that there have been there's so many buyers that are lined up have been lined up mm. haven't been able to buy deals haven't been able to buy apartments haven't been able to buy houses if there is a price drop you'd assume that there would be some of those buyers. Some of them will go, yeah. that would be still be there. Some would go away, but some people get very fearful in the, in the fear that led them to not invest maybe last year or 2020. is probably going to lead them to not invest yeah. in a drop. But there is so much capital earmarked for commercial real estate, especially multifamily, because where else are you going to go? Everything's, yeah. this kind of conversation of apartments seem expensive. Show me the asset class that isn't right now that you, you're saying that this is like a really cheap and it's not a value trap. It is interesting that they are looking at opportunistic by far. Um, this is their biggest, you know, they're, they're searching for deals. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. We're and, trying to find an out. Yeah. And it's almost like, I, and I don't know because looking at the graph of dry powder, it, it has increased, you know, there's a steady increase each year. It seems like by about, you know, so now it's 249 billion and it and and last year it was to 29 billion and the year before it was to 11 billion and so on so it's not like there's a big jump in dry powder i wonder if you know these people are going to be still looking it's not like this is going this money's going to instantly flood the market it's trying to they can't find deals yeah. i mean i'm having conversations every single day with people who are trying to place significant pieces of capital hmm. i mean i had a call yesterday with a group and they're like, can we take 30 40 million okay like, yeah like I, I was like i thought that they their range was kind of the five to ten they're like mm, 15 25 <laughs> like, okay and see i, I don't know and, and i done. and i agree i think that's more accurate and and this is just speculation but it seems like looking at, at opportunistic are they looking for you know this miracle deal that'll never you know this opportunity yeah well and that or... happened a lot earlier in the pandemic is i was having a lot of conversations with people who were like they were starting opportunistic funds or they're like, we're going to be very yeah. opportunistic. And for the longest time, it's like, we're waiting for this, this exactly. COVID pricing to come in. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, we're, you know, are you seeing any, any discounts? You know, we're hoping. <laughs> and, and, the, and some properties that were like in the market early in COVID, it was like a 5% discount. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe. And just for people who are like had to sell yeah. and all these groups are like, we're going to, we're waiting for it to drop. We're waiting for it to, to drop <laughs> while we're waiting. buying or while, while we are buying yeah. real estate. And, and and it never happened. So they they have all they raised all this money waiting for this crash and never happened. Then then they're playing catch up because they're like, oh that didn't happen. Things actually look really good. Yeah. They make a switch quick switch and now they're trying to buy, and but they're late to the game. They're playing they're playing catch. Yeah up. yeah. Um if, if if we can skip ahead to um, page nineteen actually. It, yeah let's it, take a look. It gives a 
price per unit on cut? apartments on different well, classes. Fast forward. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, page nineteen. Uh, well, yeah, let me let me share. Yeah, sorry. Go. So if you look on um, further in this report, it has the information on the price per unit. Now I think that this is an a useful metric that can help when assessing individual property acquisitions. Um, now, Class A apartments are obviously going to be priced differently than workforce housing, but on average in the U.S., the price per unit is two hundred thirty-eight thousand. It's three hundred fifty-three thousand for major markets and two hundred thirty-eight thousand for non-major markets. Um, so you see, the non-major markets are really um, uh, an outsized portion of the U.S. average. It's really yeah, bringing it fairly close. But I I think that it is. It's interesting how much it has risen in the past year, but it's still, if you're looking at price per unit, it seems to have dipped down pretty dramatically in 2020, and it's coming right back up to its previous peak. Yeah, it, that, that can be tough because, you know, it's like what type of properties were sold. You know, yeah. if it's an older property built in the 60s, you know, it's going to obviously trade, you know, it could trade half the price of yeah. a newly built project i mean there's stuff on the market right now for well not a whole lot for under 100k a door but let's say 100k a door and there's stuff on the market mm -hmm. for 250 300k a door yeah. in the midwest so so and but I, I think that this is this is a good starting point when you're trying to look at the relative performance or or the rel or what what you should expect for a individual property everyone the the unit the amount of units in an apartment building is not standard and so knowing the price per unit is is a nice little yeah, um, it, it's, nice yeah the price per pound, it. price per unit is definitely yeah. a good barometer. It, it Sometimes it's more appropriate than um, than others, but 100%. Um, so this is breaking down, yes. you know, what uh, which markets grew by how much, kind of putting them into a couple different categories you may call, you know, what what's kind of, you know, stable growth, what's high-flying growth, and what's just really lagging behind. And so let's look, look at some of these markets. Markets that grew by 0% to a half percent. Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Fargo, Midland, Odessa, Young, Youngstown, and Champaign. All markets that we are within our uh, operational range, but we've decided to not enter those, those markets. Now, this is really interesting because their average for the year in 2021 is among 16. the lowest. Or what was, what was what's Newmark's average? 6.8% for 2021. That was how much they think rent grew, rent grew in 2021. That's lower than some of the lower, maybe the lowest that I that I recall. Okay, I thought that they had rent growth at sixteen percent. That was for the quarter. Annualized rent growth averaged six point eight for the year. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and just so we're talking talking apples to apples, effective rent, not market rent. Now that, that that's a good point. That's that's, and, that's the, that 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 is accurate. And and six point eight percent effective rent is still a, is huge. Market rent is what we've seen growing to double digits. And so that explains what I think was another weird part of this. And I thought it was a bold prediction, but it, but it may be a more uh, clear-eyed view of what um, investors can expect in terms of returns. Their forecast for rent growth in 2022 is 12%. It's almost like a flip-flop of, um, of expectations. But to me, that, that makes sense for this reason, and this is we've been talking about this, is the spread between effective rents and current market rents, and what is the difference? Because if you're if effective rents are the like average rent that people at a property are paying, yeah. the leases that were signed last year, renewals, leases that, that aren't uh, raised as much, but they're just they're not always brought to market. 
So that's going to be an actual accurate number of what people are paying today. Market rent is just something that someone has posted online somewhere that they are attempting to lease an apartment for. And so they could never even achieve that. They may have only rented one unit. And so if you're looking at like rent market rent growth on a property, they raise the rents $200 from eight, from a thousand to 1200. You see there's a 20% market rent growth, but reality, and they have only signed one lease. So the effective rent growth is, I don't know the math off the top of my head, but it's probably, you know, a percent or so. It, it, it's, a, it's a fraction. It's not even a percent mm-hmm. over the total average leases. And so over the next, year, I, I think, two to three years, because that's about what it's going to take to get through renewals, two years at the earliest, and then a little bit of growth in year three, to take all future organic rent growth out, there is going to be this growth of the effective rents gradually moving up to market. Yeah. Um, as people finally move out, they turn those units over and they they'll probably still have a couple of units at a thousand dollars, and then they'll you know tag on thousand twenty five dollars. Yeah. Uh, I, but then they're like, okay, you moved out. Now the rent is twelve hundred, and that's yeah. going to happen over a couple of years. So that's the difference. Yeah. It, it seems like now the market still has priced is priced based on like market rent. Instead of effective rent, like they're already kind of assuming that. Oh, yeah, you're you're paying up. Yeah, you're paying on pro forma for sure. A hundred percent. Where do you want to go to next? We can move on, move on to the apartment list report. Actually, this the top line message for this report is that on-site workers are paying markedly more um, and they are markedly more cost burdened than remote workers when it comes to rent. And on-site workers just means someone who works like at somewhere like at a location not out of their house yeah that is not able to do remote work this isn't too surprising but it's fairly interesting that apartment list found that the metros where remote friendly occupations are most common have tended to see the slowest rent growth so yes i you know sorry say say that again so again the the places where remote friendly occupations are most common where where they have the most remote workers like a san francisco those places the rent growth has gone not as high the places where they have a lot of people that are working on site those rents have gone up that's that's interesting there's a lot of things we can compare to or in our causes that, yeah that, that that i i think that it is a Does little san francisco bit... bring that number down you think you just because it's such a large market in san francisco so has I, just been i think suffering so much well and that and that's the thing is like and, and i'll get into this a little bit they don't provide hundred percent context here. Um, and it's also interesting how narrow of a band we're looking at. And if you scroll down, they have a little bit of a chart here. Um, the amount of remote friendly jobs seems to be hovering around 30 to 40% for most of these cities, rarely under 25% or above 40%. That being said, barring the possibility that they cherry pick their cities here to make their point, apartment list draws up a pretty sharp correlation here. There's San Bernardino. And this is a, there's a graph underneath this actually. Where you have a my favorite scatter plot. <laughs> Describe what we're looking at, man. Yeah, for all so the folks we, who are we've got a scatter plot here where it has Riverside, California, on the top left, where where we're seeing a lot of rent growth and very few remote friendly workers. So, so on the far to the left of the graph is not remote friendly. To the right is remote friendly. So you'll see San Francisco. This is the top right. Places in the left are you know Riverside and kind of a Louisville and more, more Midwestern markets, I, I would guess. Yeah. And then the, um, uh, Y axis rent growth 
2020 through 2022. Yeah. So, so they, and it is a fairly, you know, there is a band, like I said, it's like 30 to 40% is usually what you're, you're going to see in terms of how many remote friendly jobs are out there per, per market. Mm-hmm. That being said, you got that San Bernardino Riverside market with 32% and 23% remote friendly jobs. And then there's San Jose, San Francisco, the other two sands on the other end with 46% and, remote friendly jobs and 42% and then both of them negative 7% rent growth. So these places where you think that they have all these remote workers and, and they must be, you know, doing, doing well and increasing rents, their rents have gone down. Yeah, people, people are leaving that, that could be, that could be a case. I, I mean, Washington DC people aren't leaving San Francisco. They are Minneapolis. They are. So here, here's a quote that Denver, I think they're not kind of Boston, hints. Not. So, so this quote kind of hints at what, I think might be going on. It says, for instance, it can be seen that some of the areas that had the lowest cost burden rates for on-site workers before the pandemic have actually seen some of the region's fast, fastest rent growth over the past two years. The rents, low rents pre-pandemic, uh, they had a chance to move up. They had yeah. more room to move up. The pandemic has had a huge leveling effect on housing costs and rents. So you would expect that those places with lower costs would be the ones to see this increase. Again, I, I kind of hinted this. It's a little bit frustrating to read reports like this that call attention to what are pretty compelling trends without fully accounting for the context from which these trends have emerged. If you skim this report, it does little more than leave you with the impression that on-site workers have it harder than remote workers. I'm not going to argue about that. And rising rents are exacerbating income inequality, which may or may not be true, but these impressions are full of implications and assumptions in and of themselves. And without examining why these trends, specifically rent growth, have emerged, it's difficult to imagine a solution, which fortunately, that's why we're here. <laughs> Spencer, I've got a solution. Good. What, I, I wrote, yeah, I wrote so it down. What do you, what do you got? So, okay, let's start. Yeah, everyone's with, trying to figure out. So, yeah, what's, what's, what's the let's start with San Bernardino. And let me tell you right now, I don't think you would have thought of this. So let's take rents in San Bernardino. Let's Let's say uh, cap the rent increases at 5% plus the percentage change in the cost of living or 10%, whichever is lower of the lowest gross rental rate charged for that dwelling or unit at any time during the 12 months prior to the effective date of the increase. It's pretty simple. Um, I don't like what you're saying, Matt. Well, I do have to admit something. I didn't come up with that idea. That's actually California Law AB 1482, otherwise known as the Tenant Protection Act mm. of 2019. I'll figure out something in the meantime. I'll figure out a way for the government to reach into so the market and set the, things it didn't right. Fix the problem. Doesn't look like it did. Now this law seemed to have gone into effect in August 2021, but if rent control laws and the word of mouth about them have any effect on investment in an area, well, it started in then LA, it, and then yeah, well, and but but if this if this is the law of 2019 and that has made investment shy away from yeah places like San Bernardino, then there's two years of maybe higher supply that they could have had on there. What I really think is happening is the places with a lot of remote workers, a lot of tech workers had high rents anyways. And so that's why they cooled off. That's the story. It's not a story of, you know, these people are are being squeezed even more. That may be the effect, but the Mm -hmm. real story is the the cheaper places to live had more to catch up on and the more expensive places to live were cooling off. So that's... That's my sum. <laughs> I think that's a good summary. I think it makes sense. Hop on to greatreport.com if you want to actually take a look at these reports. Um, because again, a lot of great data sets, some good visualizations, um, especially if you're listening to the podcast. And you can watch a recording of 
this conversation of the gray report on YouTube, hop on over to our YouTube channel and we're sharing these graphs and screens. But if you actually want to get the reports yourself, grayreport.com or sign up for the gray report newsletter, Matt, let's move uh, quickly just over to the wall street journal article, just briefly yeah. talking about investors sentiment. Investors are buying real estate in the Sun Belt. They are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was so shocked. I was like, what? But, so, you know, Wall Street Journal <laughs> listener, they're, fo- you know, they may not be focused. Exactly. On and this is like, I like to read these uh, these reports from like the quote unquote mainstream news or, or these larger news outlets. They're talking to the layperson um, specifically for Wall Street Journal. It's probably like a business minded, um, you know, they're business minded yeah. readers and they want to clue in on the uh, multifamily market. And um, and so this is how they characterize it. Basically, they say that one thing that's pulling people to the Sunbelt markets is rising wages, including the demand from higher paid workers moving into Florida and mm-hmm. looking for apartments. That looks looks like it makes sense to me. I do think it's interesting. That, and it's just as anecdotal, but it talks about how one company's portfolio went from 2% pre-pandemic to 20% in the Sunbelt post-pandemic. Oh, yeah. um, now, we saw the exact numbers from the capital markets report that we just covered, but 2 to 20%, that's a lot. Um, so that's a really telling story and you know, kind of a specific example there. Another thing that they that they see as drawing people to places in the Sun Belt is expansion of university campuses and medical facilities that attract knowledge workers, as well as new investments in transportation into infrastructure, um, specifically in Phoenix. Again, yeah. alongside the rising wages you look for when you're looking, when you're doing your market analysis, you look for stable, robust jobs. And I think there's a reason why, you know, universities are called institutions. They're not going anywhere. I think it's a little risky when you're relying on just the hospital and just uh, the university for for employment. Yeah, you want some other stuff going on. Yeah, and then and then finally, you know, as I mentioned in my uh, in my thought experiment with San Bernardino, um, it does talk about a little bit of pushback, and I wonder if these voices are going to get louder. It said the frenzy in the multifamily market, intensifying concerns about affordability. And lawmakers in Tampa have discussed rent control. The U.S. Senate Banking Committee held a hearing to discuss the, in, the effects institutional investors are having on housing affordability. I think that there are, like this, the, quote, the following quote is, but for now there appear to be few threats to these billions in new investments. There's billions on one side, and then there's some kind of like preliminary conversations on the other. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anything's happening necessarily on the government side yeah. that anyone's scared of. But at this point. that, the, you, what the, the risk in. The, ri- the political risk is yeah. um, a knee-jerk reaction from politicians who don't understand economics, mm-hmm. who are just making politically convenient, taking politically convenient stances in really populist stances, because it's easy to say you can get to someone's heartstrings immediately, you know, talking oh, about yeah. their, their wallet, and everyone's seen prices of everything going up. And that's why the conversation of inflation yep. is powerful, and the Republicans are using that, and then the Democrats on the you know local city council side, they're going to be using mm-hmm. um, it to say, you know, we need to instill or we need to put in place price controls, which rent control is yeah. price controls. You know, they see this problem and it doesn't even matter if it works as long as you're doing something. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to work. We have to just feel good that we've done something. Exactly. Get reelected. And, and it is and it is true. Like, I think that's almost like a fundamental truism yeah. Um, for for poli- for politics, and, and so these markets that are high flying, you, you may not be the supply issue, but another risk factor is the just the overreaction to yeah. the inflow of of residents. Yeah. And so a market like Tampa, that you would not, and I'm not an expert in Tampa politics, but you know, it wouldn't strike me as the top city that would um, implement rent control. Yeah. But when you see 
rental rates increasing by 50, 30, 40, 50%, mm-hmm. you, and if a constituent comes to you and is like, is this right? It's yeah. hard for you to say it is. And then you're, you even, and again, it's a slippery slope. Well, that's unreasonable. So let's, we will have a, you know, a cap of 10% or 15% yeah. that seems reasonable, but then, you know, that cap gets lowered over time and it just distorts the market. Again, like, and, and we have talked about rent, rent control. I think the, the, the 6.8 on effective rents that's the number that like may be it's what people feel so the effective rents what people feel exactly. once those really start going up and if they go up by 12 percent, we're gonna hear a lot more about this it's milk and cheese today but it's gonna be rents in the future the um the buzzword that i've heard i've yeah. seen it quite a bit on reddit recently is the renoviction um hmm. phrase of uh and, and we don't basically it's the idea, according to the renter, is like a, a buyer comes in and they basically try to evict everyone yeah. if they can, which usually you can't. But basically, or bank buying people out of their leases, obviously doing a value add plan, renovating the units, and then you know raising rents significantly higher and really pushing uh, into residents are like, you're going to kick me out of my home. I've been living here. Now you're yeah, saying that seems like a tale as old as time almost. Yeah, like I, yeah, and I don't yeah, I don't see that as a. As a big threat, I'm but it's because, but the bottom line is it's becoming more and more talked about, yeah. And the political risk is definitely out there. It's more so in some markets than others. Yeah. I don't see how like anything happens federally. I just don't. I mean, I I, I, I don't see how how that is applicable yeah. or constitutional. But you know, you've mentioned there are some investors, there are some liberal Democrat investors in in a, commercial real estate. A, so. Exactly, and if you start looking at any kind of economics textbook of anyone. Yeah. There's yeah. not really. A, well, and that's what you were saying, too. It's like on the side of rank there's people. a political thing. But I think also, you know, they would be fools to not consider that there's going to be economic consequences. And it's hard to upset the boat without yeah. knowing what, yeah. what's going to happen. I agree. All right. Well, this is a great episode of The Gray Report. I appreciate you either watching or listening to The Gray Report. You can subscribe to The Gray Report podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And something that would mean incredible amount to both Matt, myself, the entire Great Capital team is is leave us a you know five star rating and a review. Um, but also, don't forget um, you can go to the OG spot for the Gray Report, and that would be on the Gray Capital YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribed over there on YouTube, and to get the trifecta, hop on over to GrayCapitalLLC.com/newsletter. Make sure you are signed up for the Gray Report newsletter. And so once you have that holy trinity of Gray capital gray report information you're going to be ready to um take the next step with the gray fund again it's only open for accredited investors but we're going to be buying around seven to ten cash flowing multifamily assets in the midwest markets that we've identified just have incredible drivers the right supply and demand fundamentals we have boots on the ground experience and the operational capacity to execute these business plans again the timing is right um and if it stops being the case, we're going to know about it because we're checking these reports right. every single day and every single week. So hop on over to graycapitalllc.com slash grayfund for more information on how you can subscribe and be a member of the Gray Fund. Only open to accredited investors. This is not an offer to invest in any securities. Any such offering will take will be in the form of a private placement memorandum. Love to see you next week. Get in touch with us. See you in the next great report.